Coming to the stage is a journalist who has paved the way for not only herself, but for those who are coming behind her in the sports industry. She's an outspoken advocate for those whose voices are underrepresented in sports and politics. In 2018, she was named Journalist of the Year by the National Association of Black Journalists. And in 2019, she was named one of worst 21 most powerful women in the business of sports. Did I mention she's won multiple NAACP Image Awards? Hmm, that's nice. <clears throat> she is a trailblazer, a contributing writer for The Atlantic, host and voice for this generation. She was truly unbothered. Please welcome to the stage, Jamel Hill. Thank you. Congratulations on your NAACP Image Award win. You know what, what is that like? <laughs> you are so funny. <laughs> what is that like? Well, you know, Marquita worked down to the NAACP, and I still ain't one. You know, it's not for all, it's not for everybody. <laughs> it's not. I, I have to say. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry you don't know this feeling of being a twice nominated, multiple winner. <laughs> Of said image awards. One day I'm One gonna day. win my image award. I won't get... I won't rest. They give me an Oscar, <laughs> Tony, Emmy, Golden Globe, Pulitzer. You're right. If but I don't that, win that, that image award, I will not it's rest. It's all for nothing. It's, it's all, all for nothing. nothing. I hear you. I get it. I get it. Oh, so Jamel Hill is here with us. I have been a fan of yours for the longest. I'm trying to maintain my composure. I don't know if you remember this, you probably don't. When I worked at All Deaf, I saw you, you were eating lunch with your boss, and I stopped you, I was like, Jamel, I'm such a big fan, and you were like, oh, this is great, because I'm having a one-on-one with my boss right now, and this is great, and I was like, nice, man, hire her, give her a raise, <laughs> I do, do all that, and I walked away. Why did I not, re oh, I didn't connect one plus one, yep. you're right, that I was so me. remember. You remember? I, I do remember. Yeah, because I was trying to get you that little raise, I ain't know and who it you worked. was talking to. So thank you, <laughs> it works. Oh my God, now, now, you want one of my image awards? Because you can have it now. Like, I want to win my own. All right. I got to get out of the category where you vote for the people. I need to bribe the people who choose. <laughs> well, you know, you do have to. It, it does feel a little weird because there is some aspect of campaigning. I don't mean internally, but mm -hmm. just with the public. I know, it, Marquita. Marquita looking at me because I, I didn't mean, campaign. The second, I was hurt. I campaign. campaigned hard the first time and I, I know, lost the tab. But I'm telling you if, you, if you commit to it. And I just, I put out a few selective posts mm -hmm. and was just making sure that I kept it in the public consciousness. And then on my podcast, I mentioned a go vote for me. My husband posted about it too. So it's like you you do have to do a little okay, bit Okay, I learned my lesson. Yeah. I didn't campaign the second time the second one's on me okay first one's first one is on tab right tab cried about her <laughs> right. mom i was like i knew i lost then i was like i went and voted for her that day i was like well uh, you know god bless it but anyway let's talk about you let's go all the way back to the beginning okay jamel hill if you don't know is from detroit what was it like growing up in detroit oh i mean detroit is i know that there are so many different perceptions of, of detroit most of them negative okay. uh, granted I, it feels like we're coming out of that and mm -hmm. that this is maybe one of the more positive stretches that we've gone through. But when I was coming up, the only time I ever saw Detroit on the national news was when the murder rate got released and we were usually in the top three. Uh, and when it was, um, th there was this horrific tradition that we engaged in called Devil's Night. And so the night before Halloween, people would literally set buildings on fire, uh, you know, abandoned buildings. So it'd be mm. like 600 fires in one night. And I'm not exaggerating. Every, every, Every yes, October this was 30th? this was a deal for years, right? Oh. And finally, after some community involvement, a real intense focus on stopping this, it finally stopped. But the, that was the only time that I ever saw Detroit on TV. It was always for negative things. And I think because of the perception 
that Detroit has. We're not the cool city. Like, people, you know, Chicago's right next to us. Yeah. We know what, I ain't throwing shade, but we know Chicago doesn't have a tame murder rate either. Right. 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 Okay. But Chicago, because they have so many other things that they're known for, yeah. that that is a label that doesn't stick to them the same. New York, L.A., every major city has crime. Right. But for Detroit, because we were never cool, we're never the spot to go to, that we had to deal with the brunt of that. And so it gives you a chip on your shoulder mm. and you always feel like you have you're going to prove people wrong and you're going to show people that not just good things, but great things come from Detroit. You know, we got yeah. a whole sound that came from Detroit. The, I was about to say Motown. Listen, Diana from there. Diana Ross. OK, yeah. we got Stevie. We got the whole temptation. The gospel side, like the go- Fred, the look, we run it in the gospel. Yeah. Put some respect on us. <laughs> you know, the Clark sisters, the Winans family. Yes. yes. I mean, these are gospel foundational family exactly they're all from detroit all stayed in detroit um a lot of them did i mean in my high school i went to mumford high school Mm -hmm. and i remember when i told people that some people uh recognized it from when eddie murphy wore the t-shirt in beverly hills cop Mm -hmm, it mm -hmm. says mumford physical education department yeah and people thought it was a fictional high school i was like no no we real okay (laughs) so that was my high school and the wine is like bb wine is went there i think cc went there uh, a couple of the Clark sisters went there. Fred so like, went there. Fred went CP, there. CP, yes. Spice. CP, yes. Spice, like, you know it, right? uh, We had a lot of Detroit people here, and they all went. Is there other high schools in Detroit? Yes, the most common high school people know is Cass, Cass okay. Tech, because that's where Kenya Moore went. Mm. Um, that's where Big Sean went. Unfortunately, you know, we all... Kwame Kilpatrick went there too. <laughs> People like to, you know, gladdy out, you know what I'm saying? Doing his thing. Gladdy out. You know, but yeah, so there's a lot of, because Cass is the biggest high school in Detroit. So mm. the odds, there, and, and it's a high school you have to test into. So okay. there's three high schools in Detroit you have to test into. It was Cass, Renaissance, and Martin Luther King Jr. So for a lot of people who, when you're in college, you usually run into somebody from one of those three schools. Got it. So Got it. yeah, but to answer your question about growing up in Detroit, it's a gritty city. It's a um, tough city. It's a prideful city. Mm-hmm. You know, we take it seriously. Like, there's nothing, you know, we put on for Detroit hard because yeah. we know if we don't, no one else will. And so I carry that spirit with me in everything uh, that I do, reminding people of, of where I'm from and how proud I am to be from this city despite the negative perceptions it has. Do you think that, that chip was valuable to you because you know you you came through and we'll we'll stay in your childhood but i'm just curious you came through a male dominated thing and you had to fight do you think that having that chip made it easier for you to navigate it did because i didn't even realize what i was navigating until i got on bigger stages like to me it was just all kind of normal when you're a girl growing up and and listen i'm a mid-70s baby to tell my (laughs) age a little bit so i grew up in the 80s and it wasn't really fashionable for girls to be in the sports mm-hmm. right is that uh, even though there were obviously female athletes that were dominant during that time but you know on a neighborhood grassroots level no it wasn't you were looked at as a bit of an oddity so I've always had to be able to hold my own in the company of men because mm-hmm. I played sports or I should say in the company of boys at the, at the time so I was a neighborhood tomboy and yeah a lot of little boys would try to try you because they see a girl who is maybe as athletically comparable to them, especially yeah. at that stage before, you know, sort of strength really matters. Right, <laughs> And right. so, you know, they don't want to get shown up by a girl. So you're yeah. going to get it tougher than, than other people will get it. And so it taught me how to hold my own. It taught me, um, you know, just how to be resilient. And those were lessons that I carried 
through with me as I, you know, sort of rose in the field of sports journalism. You know, it's so interesting because my my son plays competitive soccer and he's really good. Uh, but at his age, these girls be beating the brakes off of them. <laughs> they scrimmage against girls in their age group. It Ooh, is no contest. It's ugly. It's it is. Ugly. I mean, he could be getting thrown around. I'm like, oh, we scrimmaging girls? Night, night for y'all. Because these boys, be, it's 7-0, 8-0. It's just lights out. And the best basketball player I ever played against was a girl, Kendra, in, in North Carolina. She was just cooking us, crossing us over. Could have played for our team. Mm. It was just amazing. But I didn't realize, didn't think about it until you said it. Strength really is Yeah, that's, a, that's that. then it, it separates, obviously, by the time they get to middle school, uh, even a little bit before then. As, uh, but women, girls and women are used to playing against boys because most of us had to come up that way. Because if you mm. come up in communities where they don't have a separate girls league or separate yeah. girls teams, you have to play with the boys. Yeah. So for us, it's a very comfortable environment and I think it does teach you some like great life lessons going forward because most women will wind up in an industry that's dominated by men. Mm-hmm. So it teaches us how to navigate those spaces. So what were you like as a kid? Are you shy, outspoken, introvert, extrovert? Uh I think uh I was brooding <laughs> is what I was. <laughs> so I mean it, I'm one of those people that uh I'm I, I can adapt to any situation. I was you know, my, my husband messes with me because he was like Mr. Popularity in high school. <laughs> and he was like, you like nobody knew you in high school. I was like, no, I was cool with everybody. I didn't have a specific click necessarily. I was just kind of cool with everybody, you know, minding my business, stay moisturized. That was that was <laughs> kind of what I was on or whatever. But, you know, I was always the the kid who would get like a great grade and a bad citizenship grade. Right. <laughs> you know, right. so the way this the we we the way we were graded and I don't know if this I'm sure this probably still doesn't exist is that you know, you get a letter grade and then your citizenship would be a 1 2 or a 3. Mm-hmm. So I was good for getting the 8 3, 3 being the worst citizenship <laughs> because I'd be talking in class <laughs> and especially if it was a class that I didn't feel like challenged me. Mm-hmm. Like most kids you get a little bored, you start engaging in clownish behavior and then whatever. And so um, I wouldn't say necessarily I was an extrovert. I was somewhere in the middle because I've always been the type of person that when things bother me, I tend to keep them inside. Mm. And But that's how writing became something that I loved is, you know, I started off keeping journals. I was reading the newspaper because I, you know, back in those days, there was no internet, no mm. Google. <laughs> uh, so you had to keep up with your sports teams by reading the newspaper. Wow. So that got me into sports writing. And I was already somebody who loved to read. I journaled. And so it just kind of all came together for me when I got to high school. And I took a high school journalism class and never looked back. So that was what? 10th grade? Mm-hmm. High school journalist, journalism class. What sort of clicked in your mind? What, was it like all those pieces of like, oh, this is sports, journalism. I can put these two together and, and, and I'm in heaven? That's exactly what it was. Is that because I read the newspaper, I knew it was possible, even though I didn't know in my immediate circle anybody yeah. who was a sports writer. So reading newspaper was one, uh, one sort of chain, you know, in the overall link. But the other thing, too, was the way that newspapers, high school newspapers are produced in Detroit was a huge factor. So the way it was done then is that all the high schools, they their papers were produced by the professional paper, the Detroit mm-hmm. Free Press. So once a month they put a special insert in the Detroit Free Press, which was the largest paper in Michigan, still is, and you know you got to read what was happening in all the high schools. Mm-hmm. So we had to put together our paper by going to the professional newspaper. Wow! And so the first time I walked into a professional newsroom, I was just hooked. 
It was like a lot of activity, a lot of yelling, people running around. I was like, ooh, what is happening? <laughs> and whatever is happening, I like it. Yeah. And so coming down there once a month exposed me. And then I got to know journalists that worked in the newsroom. And um, they had an apprenticeship program that took Detroit uh, metro area students uh, through a 10-week uh, apprenticeship course where you got paid $10 an hour, which that was a lot in wow. 1992, you know. $10 <laughs> is solid. Yeah, that's solid, in right? 92? Ni- l- listen, <laughs> 20 hours a week, 92. So once I got the apprenticeship, um, I was there at the paper for six weeks in the summer, and it converged with another, um, you know, very divinely ordered thing, which is the National Association of Black Journalists. Their convention was in Detroit the same summer. And the person who was the curator of our program took all of his high school students. It was maybe like 12 or 13 when I was down to the NABJ convention, made us register as students, introduced us to a bunch of professional journalists, made us pass out our resume. We had to walk up to strangers and go, hi, my name is Jamel Hill. I'm 16. I go to Muffer High School and I want to be a journalist. We had to do that. That wow. was the exercise she put us through because she wanted us to understand a, the ambition and drive that it takes. She wanted us to overcome the hurdle of having to talk to people you don't know because mm-hmm. that's part of journalism is that you have to interview people true. you do not know. So that shyness you have to get over. And, uh, yeah, I became a student member, never looked back. And I got a job in the sports department when I was 16 answering phones uh, and writing up summaries of high school games that happened. And, again, I was very lucky because – a lot of people, when they go through life, you, you change professions three or four different times, mm-hmm. even more than that. You you don't settle on things, sometimes until later in life. I knew from the beginning what I wanted to do, and everything I did from that moment was about becoming the best sports writer I could. I hadn't even thought about television. Television really? was like, television was lame. The idea of doing TV was lame. Lame? Heck yeah, because... Realize print journalists and broadcast journalists, when I was coming up in the business, it was like Crips and Bloods. It's like, <laughs> they over there, what set you claiming? Oh, KABC, what you got? KTLA, what you got? Like, that's that's how we looked at it. It was, we looked down on broadcast journalists because we thought you and your little perfect hair, your little makeup. You know, you ain't in these streets like we in these streets. Like, that's how we came up with that yeah. idea that TV was for shallow people. Then wow. I saw the paychecks. I was like, I've, I've been doing, I've been hustling backwards. I've been doing this wrong. It was, I, I t- listen, I'm very honest with journalism students when I speak to them. I was like, oh no, it was the check that changed my mind. I, I, I'll be completely transparent. When I started doing it, I loved it. And it wasn't until I got to ESPN, but I never came into the game wanting to be on TV at all. My dream job was to work at Sports Illustrated. That was my dream job. I remember as a kid, Sports Illustrated was like everything. It was every. We used to get the magazines, or I used to take them from the dentist office or whatever. <laughs> See what I'm saying? But it was like the, that was that was it. The creme de la creme yes. of of sports, and the newspaper was. You know, I mean, if you were a little bit older, you know, TV was dope, but you know, Sports Center wasn't a thing for a long time. Yeah, like ESPN grew and you know started and grew. But I remember, like, locally, it was the newspaper. Mm-hmm. You found out things about the, the newspaper and then the local news and then the national, you know, news. But I never thought about print journalists being like, you dirty little television <laughs> host. And they, listen, they looked at us like, same way, like, you and your poverty walking around here. <laughs> <laughs> it's your poor little notepads. <laughs> and 
tell you, they looked at us the same way. It, right, was, it right. was no different. And then come to find out, especially when you're first starting out at TV and you're in a local market, you know, you in market 182 or something, man, you might be making, and this is not an exaggeration, uh, like $14,000 a year. You know, when what? I graduated, no, when I graduated from from college, the average salary for a professional journalist was $19,000. $19,000? Newsweek did a list of top 100 professions. Journalism was 98. We got beat by log rolling. I'm not I'm not even kidding. Literally log rolling? Literally log rolling. It was like log like log rolling. It beat us, oh, right? Oh and so I don't even remember what was behind us, but I'm like, man, it must have been like serial killer. Like what is <laughs> what is work? Like this is not good. Dang. And uh, friends of mine, like when I first my first job out of college, I was working at the News and Observer in Raleigh and I made 22. And, um, but I had friends of mine on the broadcast side, like one of my friends, he was working in a local market and he made, he was making 12,000 a year. So that is like not unusual. And so that is why it's so interesting for me to see now that young people actually think you can make money doing this. Not saying you can't, but right. it's because, you know, they see a Stephen A. Smith or they see, you know, some of the, a Don Lemon and they yeah. think like, oh, that's what I'll make. They represent the one percent of that's literally the lebron and steph of of journalism. that profession yes yeah. exactly most journalists it's a working class profession and um what what people make in local markets um you know the la times is different it's a major newspaper mm -hmm. but smaller publications like they're not making salaries that are you know anywhere close to the level of what you can make in television so that's why and then, then, and then that kind of declined, you mm -hmm. know, because I remember when I was in high school, this is just broke my heart. And I never forgave the newspaper industry for failing. I want to take a quick break from the show to talk to you about our podcast sponsor for today's episode, BetterHelp. Listen, people don't always realize that physical symptoms like headaches, teeth grinding, and even digestive issues can be indicators of stress. And let's not forget about doom scrolling, sleeping too little, sleeping too much, under eating and overeating. I know somebody that does that. Listen, I, I teeth grind. I undereat. I don't undereat. I overeat. I overeat. But I've gotten better with better help because now I understand the reasoning behind my stress and overeating and how I use food to cope. I didn't realize the source of the impetus of how I use food to deal with things I don't want to deal with. And now I do. And that's because of better help. Stress shows up in all kinds of ways. In a world that's telling you to do more, sleep less, and grind all the time, here's a reminder to take care of yourself, do less, and maybe try some therapy. I've been doing this for almost two years with BetterHelp. I've seen a tremendous response in the way I parent, the way I husband, and the way I present myself as a person. I had all these triggers and unhealed wounds and trauma. And, and now it's not that I don't have that stuff. It's that I know how to deal with that stuff. And I know where it's coming from. And that is a better life. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's more affordable than in-person therapy. It's more convenient. It's more efficient. Give it a try and see if online therapy can help lower your stress. Coming to the stage, listeners, get 10% off their first month at BetterHelp.com slash stage. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash stage. And now back 
to the show. But I wanted when, in my schools, like the Lakewood Journal was what you would be in. And I was like, oh, it's my senior year. I'm going to see my clips. And they were like, the Lakewood Journal is over. And I was like, who's going to talk about me then? So this is why I tell people, um, you know, one of my soapboxes is please support local journalism. Mm-hmm. And that's why. Because, you know, yeah, USA Today is great. The LA Times is great. Washington Post, New York Times, they're all great. But they cover the country, if not the world. They're not going to cover who's the best athlete at the high school that's mm. in your community. Exactly. Or some of the community issues that are going on. And so when I hear people sort of recoil at the idea of paying for a subscription service. Like, I I must be subscribed to, like, 20 newspapers. (laughs) And I do it because I think supporting local journalism is really important. Mm -hmm. Um, And so people don't understand that they're, despite the foolishness you may see in journalism, the original purpose of this profession was a very simple phrase that was often repeated to me as I was a young journalist. We are to comfort the the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. That is the whole Mm. point of journalism is you're holding people in power accountable. And when you think about the things you wouldn't know if not for journalism, you know, take being here in L.A., if not for a wonderful series that the San Jose Mercury News did, people wouldn't know that it was the government flooding crack into the neighborhoods. That was a journalist discovery. Okay, And so when you think about all the things we know from the opioid crisis to Big Pharma Mm -hmm. to all of this, it all started in journalism. And so that is why we need to support local journalism, because that's often what spurns national conversation and national action. Off my soapbox. That was a good soapbox because <laughs> I didn't even know it was that newspaper that did that. It I actually don't San remember Jose where Mercury. I got that mm-hmm. information from. I didn't yeah. realize it was a journalist. That is also just ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, as black folks, we get blamed for everything. I was like, bro, we don't have no planes. <laughs> How are we finna get the crack from over there Listen, to over here? Nino Brown said it on the stand. <laughs> we should have listened. <laughs> God, he find no guns over here. <laughs> Me is Hawkins. <laughs> I mean, we know that's. These are all. Uh, you know, this is why the, the uh, democracy cannot function without a free press. Right. It cannot function without one. Absolutely. So let's go from Mumford to Michigan State. Mm-hmm. Now, Michigan State, you are a very proud, very <laughs> proud for the Spartan. Spartan alum. <laughs> I mean, you take all the barbs from Michigan <laughs> State, Ohio State, Michigan. You go hard. So talk to me about, like, uh, you say you grew up at Michigan State. What do you mean by that? Well, uh, like most young people, when you get to college, you have a very limited understanding of personal responsibility. <laughs> and then in college, once it's on you, you have to be the one waking up for class. Yep. Mama ain't going to come shake you. She <laughs> like, that's not going to happen. You're putting your schedule together. I mean, you really are living. Um, you don't, you have some bills. They ain't grown people, grown people bills, mm-hmm. but you're living as close to a grown person as possible. And so there I had to grow up a lot. One, I was coming from a city that at the time was 90% black. So my interaction with white people on a daily basis was extremely limited, <laughs> to say the least. Okay, I knew them. You know, I knew they existed. They were around. <laughs> like a squirrel. <laughs> like a little white person. <laughs> nice. Anyway. Uh, and working at the free press as a high school uh, teenager, like, you know, of course I interacted with white people, but to be like, only surrounded by white yeah. people. That was different. So was it like a culture shock for you? Huge culture shock. Uh, I mean, I, I didn't. I don't know what I was thinking I, when I went to Michigan State. I was. I never. Even though there were a couple people from my high school who went there, I never thought about like rooming with them because mm-hmm. I mean we were cool, but we didn't know each other like that. So I never. <laughs> 
thought about it. And so I went in blind. So I was just like, oh, I'll just get a sign. And I don't, in my mind, I was thinking like, oh, they don't know I'm black. And they was going to probably put me with somebody black. Mm -mm. That was not the case. <laughs> I walk in the door and there's two white girls and I'm like, oh, oh okay. We're we going to be close, close. All right. I got you. So um, it was a, a rooming situation. They call it triple because it was three to a room. It were mm -hmm. overcrowded the first week. That's how it was for me. Yeah, too. exactly. You mm -hmm. know, they know that there are folks that are not going to show up. Mm -hmm. And then, they within a couple of weeks they figured it out. So I, I then had a single and my sweet mates, they were from a area in, in Michigan called Sterling Heights, which is a suburb of Detroit. But growing up we used to call it Sterling Whites, right? <laughs> <laughs> because there's a lot of white people there. Yeah. And I think about I write about this, I, I have a memoir coming out um in the fall and I write about this a lot, is that, you know, the conversations that we had then were um, really fascinating and the good thing is that we didn't know what we didn't know so we were able to lay it on the table in a way right, right. And so when we had the hair conversation it's like one of the funniest things ever when the hair like, conversation? yes because they were like the grease explained <laughs> explained? and I was like the washing of it every day explained <laughs> why is it that when I step in our bathroom it ain't I feel like a chihuahua was murdered in this <laughs> in this shower Chewbacca, did he take? <laughs> did he get in the shower? Like, why do y'all have so much hair? Why y'all washing all the time? So that was like truly eye opening, and I was like, oh, now I get it, right? right? right. And then especially one of my sweet mates, she started dating a black dude. <laughs> that she couldn't tell her parents about. And like, it, I'm telling you, I'm so glad reality TV didn't exist because right. we would have made a show. A hundred percent, we would have made a show. So, you know, being um, exposed to not just white people, but other cultures in general, like having my first experiences, having LG, LGBTQ friends, like mm -hmm. that happened in college. And so even though when people say, oh, you know, college is an academic environment, but I think socially what you learn yeah. is really important, um, yeah. especially going to a predominantly white institution. I mean, like Michigan State has 40,000 students and black people maybe would have been 2,500 to 3,000. So yep. we were a serious minority. Yeah. And so um, that's why I say like I grew up in a, in a lot of ways because, you know, the combination of where I was from, being exposed to different cultures, being a student journalist and being ex exposed to levels of history I was un unaware of. You know, one of my favorite classes I took was a uh, history class just about African-American women. Mm -hmm. You know, what, what I always, what, I mean, I remember everything that I, you know, a lot of the things I learned, but <laughs> shamefully. So one of my, one of my study partners, my study partner was a, a white dude. He got a better grade than I did. <laughs> oh my, in African-American women? Yes, African-American <laughs> women's history. Man, I was like, damn. <laughs> Harriet rolling in her grave right now. It's, it's the truth. I was like, he got a better grade than me. He got like a 3.5. I got like a 2.5. I was like. <laughs> Jamel, you is a woman. I know. You would think. See. That didn't help none. What had happened was. <laughs> I was working 60 hours a week at the newspaper. And so. In college? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I was 60 like hours a week? 50 to 60 hours a week. Easy. Easy. That hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Oh, yeah. Easy. That's why I feel like grades got to be on a, you got to, it's a cumulative scale. 
<laughs> if you ain't got to work 60 hours, our grade can't be the same. But how is you working 60 hours and going it, to college? It's, it's the nature. Like one semester I had to drop down to nine credits because of my responsibilities at the at the paper. And I, and I was there at Michigan State on an academic scholarship too. Oh, wow. And so, you know, but that's the nature of journalism. Hence why it's not a profession for everybody is that it's a lot of work. For often little pay. I was working those hours, and my first semester, I got paid $55 a week. <laughs> okay, so talking about hustling back, backwards. No, I, I literally picked the profession with the intention of being poor. <laughs> I'm not even kidding. I was like, well, So you I'm, really got to love journalism to do it. You have to love it. And I say this all the time, particularly the younger journalists, is that you can't love this profession for what it brings you. You have mm. to love it when it's at its hardest when it's not easy to do, when it's at its most difficult. I love this profession the same way I do now when I was making $30 a story freelancing for the Lansing State Journal. I love it the same. $30 a story? $30 a story. A story that would probably take me a day and a half to report. Okay? Oh. So I just, yes, it is. That's, oh my. that's the foundations of it. Now, is it better now for people writing articles for like, you know, Max, magazine? X depends on where you are. Depends on who you're writing for. Like, Obviously, the big publications, you can get 2 $3 a word, which is great. So for a story, you might, for a cover story, you might be able to get paid, you know, anywhere between $3,500 and $5,000, mm. which is great. But if you're freelancing for a local paper that has a, you know, a, a readership of like sixty or 70000 no, they're probably, maybe you might get $100. You hope? You get Uber for that. <laughs> I mean, I mean listen, I, I bet you Uber, driving Ubers and Lyfts has saved probably a number of journalism careers. <laughs> I bet you it has. I would not be shocked because it allows you to, you know, be a gig worker and, and just work yeah. based off when you can work. But that was not the case. That's what I signed up for. And so I'm working all these hours and I considered school outside of my journalism classes to be a bit, um, you know, disposable right. so my attendance wasn't the greatest sometimes <laughs> and in that class as much as I signed up for it was an elective yeah and I was like I want to take this class I want to learn um about more African-American women in history and and power dynamics than I already know and the, the professor she demanded a lot as she should have mm -hmm. the reading for that class was crazy so sometimes I didn't always have the time yeah, you was at work because I was at work a lot of the time and Sheesh. you know I mean it's it, it was what it was so when my wife's study partner got a better grade <laughs> now I understand I was like oh this is so sh but I can't even give the excuse of time because he was a a college athlete Okay, so Jimmy, I was trying to help you. I know. I was I, know. I, I, and I, I had it for it. you right there. You gave me a life raft and I just threw it back. I was like, let me drown, bro. Let me drown. No, he actually was doing I deserve hard. that shame. I do. So you graduate college and then you get your first, you know, your career begins at the Raleigh News Observer uh, as a sports writer. What kind of things were you covering? What was that like? So this was, uh, this is 1997 and it just so happened. I started as an intern, number one. So mm -hmm. I, uh, and the reason I chose to go there is because they had a track record for hiring their interns. And it was a paper that had recently won a Pulitzer. They had mm -hmm. a great reputation for developing young writers. So that I went there very intentionally. I turned down a two year, um, it was a two-year internship that I turned down to go there because I didn't want to be an intern for another two years. Right. I wanted to be a full professional and find a city and live there because the two-year internship 
is that I would have lived in Detroit one year. The next year I would have had to live in Charlotte and hope for the best after it was over. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, in this time actually was a great time for women's sports. And so when I got there, they told me that's what they wanted me to focus on. And I know for a moment I was thinking, like, am I being tokenized here because I'm a black woman? And like, oh, why don't you go cover women's sports? But looking around what was happening at the time, like the North Carolina women's soccer team at that point, they had won 14 straight national titles. Was that when Mia Hamm was there? It was right after Mia Hamm. Okay, It was the next generation after her. Got it, got it. Um, And you also had very strong basketball programs with North Carolina State, North Carolina, and Duke Mm because they're all in the same area. Yeah. The triangle, as they call it. Mm -hmm. And you also had a young rising track star named Marion Jones who was she had just won a national title with North mm-hmm. Carolina women's basketball and she had turned pro and people were upset because I think she only played one year at North Carolina they won a title off a last second shot and this was during a time where Tennessee was dominating yeah, everything yeah. so for them to win that title was a, was a big deal so there was a lot of great things happening with women's sports and once I understood that I was able to do some really amazing stories and the beauty of covering women's sports and I I talk about this is like women's sports launched my sports writing career Mm. because women um, most of the women athletes not used to being covered like the guys are Mm -hmm. so they're a little more open your access is tremendous like I go to any practice I wanted at any time let me try to go to at the time Vince Carter and Antoine Jameson were in North Carolina I remember this time yeah I was living in North Carolina at that time Trajan Langdon was at Duke so yeah I mean Try to get access to a Coach K practice. Good luck with that. Right. Meanwhile, right. the Duke women or NC State women or North Carolina women, I can show up anytime, watch the whole practice, right? <laughs> and that is what you want as a journalist. So it allowed me to write some really personal, great stories about uh, many of the athletes there. And, you know, I won a Press uh, Association Award for Best Feature. Yeah, you um, big win award. <laughs> you know, but here's the funny thing is I never – am the one who wants to apply for them. Mm. It's usually somebody else that convinces me to do it because I'm like, I don't really feel like it. And in that case, it was my sports editor. And I had done a story. I'd gone to the Citadel and done a story about the first female athlete because this was after Shannon Faulkner because, you know, when women integrated uh, the Citadel, like that was a big thing in the early 90s. And it didn't work out for her. But then slowly they started uh, integrating more women. What's the Citadel? Uh, the Citadel is an all-male, um, or was, an all-male military academy. Oh, okay. Got in it. In South Carolina, in Charleston. Mm. And uh, it was a big deal in, I think it was late, ni- late 80s, early 90s. Shannon, Shannon Faulkner actually fought in court to integrate for women this mm. all-male academy. And it was, like, crazy. And she actually wound up dropping out uh, after, like, because she got hated so bad when she was there. Yeah, like, I get it. Her family got you know, threatened all this stuff, but they kind of came out of that. And then they started slowly bringing in more and more women. So there was one woman from North Carolina, from Fayetteville, and she was the first female athlete they ever had. So I went down there and hung out with her, did a story on it and won an award. So, you know, those are the things along your path that you remember is that like kind of that early foundation that you got. And that's where I learned about, um, Really, how to be a writer? Yeah, and, and, and I, you're still a writer. Yes, that, yeah. I, I want that to be clear. Like you podcast, you mm-hmm. do TV and stuff, but you all, I, I read your stuff all the time. You still write frequently because writing was my first love. And even though television and other mediums have have certainly been able to bring me a, a lot of attention and a bigger profile, 
writing was at the core of everything that I did. Mm. Okay, so talk to me about after the Raleigh News and Observer, you went back to Detroit mm-hmm. and you got to work at the Detroit Free Press. Was that like a full circle moment for you? Or were you just like, I'm going to go do these other 60 hours <laughs> that I did in college? Well, by that time, I was making more than $55 okay. a week. Okay. okay. Let it be known. Uh, it, well, the thing was, I didn't really want to go back to Detroit that soon because mm. I was just away for two years. And I always had this fear that, oh, if I start off in Detroit, I'm never going to leave here. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to kind of explore the country, if not the world. Yeah. And But to be honest, the offer was really tempting. It's like to go back to cover Michigan State football and basketball, mm-hmm. to be able to cover national and international events. Uh, it was very tempting. It came with a $25,000 pay raise. Also very good. Pay raise? Pay raise, yes. Man. So it came with a big pay raise. <laughs> And um, being then I would uh, be living in Lansing because I was covering Michigan State. So living big pay raise, cost of living is so cheap. Yeah. And I was like, ooh, this really does work out. This math is mathing <laughs> right now. This really does work and, out after all. Out. And obviously covering my alma mater because I had been a, a sports writer when I was in college. So I knew the terrain. A lot of the same people were still there. Um, at that time, like, you know, Tom Izzo is the head coach. I knew him when he was an assistant, and not just the assistant, the lowly assistant. Really? Yeah. He, he is still the coach, too. He's still the if coach. If y'all don't know, he's still the coach. Yeah, and uh, I, I had known Tom since I was a student because I actually took coaching basketball in college, which was taught by the head coach, Judd Heathcote, and the person who filled in for him when he couldn't uh, make certain classes was Tom Izzo. Really? So it's like, yeah, it was full circle in a lot of ways. I established a relationship with the free press since I was in high school, and I had a lot of good relationships in there. So coming back, you know, felt really natural and normal. And I was there for six years, and I got to do some amazing things because this is when Michigan State's basketball program took off. Mm-hmm. They won. They went to their first Final Four since Magic in 99. It's Mateen Cleaves? Mateen Cleaves, yep. I covered him. And so – uh, they went in 99, lost to the Duke team with Trajan Langdon. Mm-hmm. And at 2000, they win it all. They went to f- four straight Final Fours. Yeah, yeah they were popping for yeah, a minute. they were popping big time. Um, and then also, at the same time, the Pistons were really good. Yeah, They won in 04. I covered – like I covered because um, they went to the Eastern Conference Finals, I feel like, five or six times in a row. Yeah. It's them in Indiana. And uh, always, you know, tussling for supremacy in, in, in the Eastern Conference. So once the Michigan State sports season was done, I would then pivot to covering the NBA playoffs. And that was my first exposure doing that, which was great. I covered the Olympics in 04. I got sent on the Olympics team. So, I'm, you know, I got to spend three and a half weeks in Greece. So, like, all these. You doing all right. I was. And then, you know, this is back to when newspapers spent money to cover yeah. things. So, you know, I got to go when it was the bowl championship series, when it was the BCS, mm-hmm. I covered six straight of those. Like, I, it was great. Hey. Yeah, so I got. As a sports little fan, as a little girl sports fan, you are like, I mean, you have, these are not just events. These are the events. Hey, I was there when that Miami-Ohio State game in 01 mm. that went to triple overtime where Willis McGahee blew out his knee. Yeah. I was there. Like, there's so many I was there moments, you know, when that happened. And it really gave me the confidence to know that I wasn't, I couldn't, um, I didn't have to limit myself to thinking of myself as a local sports writer. Mm-hmm. I could be a national sports writer. And so, um, especially covering the Olympics. Because those I mean, are national 
those those things are national. I mean, I guess because of the Detroit connection, right? But everybody knows those games oh. and, and tournaments and Olympic Olympics is a global thing. Olympics is global, um, and the way that it worked is the the owner of the newspaper because um, uh, the, the Free Press is part of a newspaper chain, Knight Ritter, which owned the Philadelphia Inquirer, Charlotte Observer, like uh, like twenty or thirty some newspapers mm-hmm. across the country, and they organized an Olympic team send everybody to where the Olympics are and then you're with your uh, colleagues from all across these different papers and that was some real training. That was the first time I met Stephen A. Smith was at the Olympics. In 2004? In 2004. I remember very vividly. I was in uh, (laughs) the bureau where all of us, you know, where we all worked out of and this very loud person comes in. He's like, I can't believe you got me in these accommodations. It's like a prison in there. And not like going in. I was like, who is this man? And what is he talking about? I mean, when I tell you he was coming in there and letting people have it, because the way it works is that the Olympic Committee sets aside housing for sports, those who are covering the Olympics. And Let's just say they're not trying to put us in anything luxurious. Ooh. I got the better end because I was at a Best Western and I was happy as hell. <laughs> <laughs> and I was at the Best Western in Athens and I was like, okay. There's compare- a Best Western in Athens? It was. And it was it was slapping too. <laughs> <laughs> it was. It was slapping. They, it, like instead of giving me a full bed, they just put two twins together. Yeah. And it was like, mm, okay. You put like, one sheet on. Just, it'll right? feel like a full it'll bed. Like a Hush. Bed. Stay on one like, side. Like you feel you that divide? But it's okay. I'm going to ignore it. Right, right. right. Um, but, yeah, no, he he was at the time a uh, columnist and, and lead NBA writer for the Philadelphia Inquirer. That's, and uh, people who watch Stephen A now probably don't realize how good of a reporter that he was. Like, mm. he covered Allen Iverson. And the way he covered, you know, the NBA and Iverson in particular is what launched his Launched his career. I knew he was there. I didn't realize it was specifically Iverson is what, you know, mm-hmm. launched Because the newspaper at that time, you don't really get the newspaper that's not in the city you live in. Correct. You know, I was in Tacoma. You get the Tacoma News Tribune and the Seattle Times. Yep. And the USA Today is it. So you don't have access to. No. This wasn't it. This before the Internet. This wasn't a thing then for you yeah. to know about leading columnists from other areas. Now, because of Twitter, because of social media, you know who's writing what in different pockets of the country. But that was that was not the case then. And I, I think people just generally have a tendency to believe when you wind up at ESPN that you were born there. I don't know why that is. I'm like, <laughs> no, we, we led whole other lives before we actually got here. So before we get to ESPN, I, I, I read that you were the, a sports columnist for the Orlando Sentinel. That is correct. And that, you were the first or the only African-American female sports columnist in the country at that time? In North America. In North America? Not just the country. It was North America. Yeah, it was 305 daily newspapers in the U.S., Canada, Mexico. Wow. <laughs> okay. And I was the only black woman who was a sports columnist at a, at a daily. And, um, you know, that's one of those statistics that is not to be, not something to be proud of. You know, not for me, but for the industry, right? Because it is a reflection of where they have failed. Because mm-hmm. uh, listen, I I think I'm a pretty good writer. I ain't that damn good. <laughs> well, I would be, be only, to be the in only, the whole continent, the only one in the whole from the top. It's just me of Canada to the bottom of Mexico. It's just you. It's just me. And you know, it was crazy because I never saw myself as being a columnist. When I came, when I left Detroit, the reason why I even applied for this job, I had two friends that were working there who 
just convinced me. They just put on a hardcore sale for me to apply for the job. And also, I was looking around the industry. At that point, the newspaper business was starting to shrink a little bit. Because mm-hmm. uh, newspapers made incredible profits for a long time because of advertising. So yep. they are seeing profit margins at like between 20 and 30%. Like so Woo! many of, it's crazy, right? They went through a huge boom. Hence why when I was at the Free Press, they like, yeah, go cover the BCS national title game, mm-hmm. even though there's nobody from Michigan in it. Right. Like, go do that. Like, <laughs> that's how they was spending money, yeah. you know? The 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 price of the brick was going up. <laughs> right? ah, so, I'm rewatching The Wire right now. So you, so you get it. really hit. <laughs> you get it, right? So they had that. You know what? When you watch The Wire, pay attention to the drug names. What they yeah. call the drugs. Death Grip. Pandemic was Pandi- one. Pandemic was one. Pandemic was one, and I was pandemic, like, "Pandemic, yo, two for two. Get, get that pandemic." <laughs> so newspapers was they had that pandemic at the time, but the business was starting to shrink, and the mm-hmm. profit margins were coming down, and there was belt tightening that was going on, and I wanted to write books eventually. I wanted to, you know, maybe think about uh, doing radio, other platforms. Mm-hmm. Still wasn't thinking about TV. But a lot of the columnists in Detroit who were a big deal, they had radio deals, book deals, all that. And that's what convinced me to apply. I made a business decision. I didn't mm-hmm. make a journalist decision. Wow. Yeah, and so, and also, another pay raise was involved. So wait, you, you're talking about the Sentinel still? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's why I jumped to the Sentinel. Like, even though column writing was not on my vision board. I, I did it because strategically it made a lot of sense. So for those of us who may not know, mainly the viewers, what is the difference between a like a reporter and a columnist? So um, one, in terms of position, columnists are considered to be the senior writers of the, of the section or of the paper. Okay. So they're gonna make more money, usually, than most reporters, because their face is out there. Like, it's not just about, oh, such and such thinks the Lakers stink. It's Jamel Hill thinks the mm. Lakers fit state, right, right? right? So then right. you become attached to what you say, and then you're you're giving your opinion. Got it. Um, you're giving it in a way that's hopefully reported, that you know, because you can have a reported opinion piece where to justify or to make your argument more concise and powerful, you talk to people who support what you're saying. Yeah. Uh, but that is, you know, that's the role of the of, of the columnist is like they're in many ways usually they become the face of the paper because you you know you grown up in Tacoma like I know there had to be one columnist or two columnists that everybody knew yeah where they wrote absolutely right so in every city there's like uh, uh, somebody who is like here in LA Bill Bill Plaschke Mm -hmm. he's been here forever yeah right he's been writing for the LA Times forever and so that's why columnists are typically paid more. You know what's interesting? I, I don't know what this says about me or the newspaper industry. I learn more columnists from around the horn than any other way. Yep. That were like Bill Plasky, paper, yeah. Woody, paper, you know, Bob Ryan. All this was from around the horn. Otherwise, prior to that, you don't know who's not in your city or the city you lived in. That was something I noticed, too, when I made that decision. I was think, like around the horn was starting around that time. And I was like, huh, they're all on TV. They all have these book deals like they're the ones kind of making money right. like in this operation. <laughs> right. So I decided to go to Orlando. What up, y'all? want to take a quick break from the show and talk to you about our sponsor for today's episode, The Crew League Season 3 from Revolt TV. Watch your favorite artist step on the court in Season 3 of The Crew League from executive producer Sean Diddy Combs and Chris Brown. This fast-paced original series showcases hip-hop's biggest stars and their crews competing on the hardwood to win $200,000 cash prize a two hundred thousand dollar 
Cash prize? Oh my God. You got to see it, y'all. Watch Chris Brown, Annuel, Tusi, NLE Choppa, G Herbo, YK Osiris, and more battle it out for the chip. These rosters are bigger and better than ever with heated rivalries and stars seeking revenge from falling short. See who makes the finals and who gets sent home. Only one team will walk away on top with your hosts, Aiden Ross and Buster Schur, providing the play-by-play -play and sideline reporting from Gorilla Nims. That's enough entertainment, excitement, and surprises to keep you at the edge of your screen. Big-time moments call for big-time players. Find out which rapper-turned-hooper is really calling the shots. Listen, stream episodes of The Crew League Season 3 exclusively on the Revolt app, YouTube, and watch Revolt.com. Follow at Revolt on Instagram and TikTok for exclusive content and behind-the-scenes clips. Don't miss this, guys. It's hoop season all around. Crew League Season 3. Watch it. Now I'm back to the show. For that. So how did you get from Orlando to ESPN? I think it's really interesting you said people, you think people are born at ESPN. People <laughs> come and go. There's been a lot of columnists, reporters, talent come. Kevin Frazier, we were talking about prior to this, was at ESPN. Now has moved on. What made you decide or how did how did you get there? What is that even <laughs> like? Are you recruited? You from I was recruited and it was funny. The reason I was recruited is because of a simple phrase, baby mama. <laughs> what? Yes. This is true. So when I was in Orlando, one of the biggest um, transitions that was a challenge was I was going from a city in Detroit that had every major sport, hockey, basketball, mm, baseball, yep. you know, football. Orlando didn't. Orlando had one professional sports team at the time, the Orlando Magic. Yep. So automatically you start thinking as a writer, like, what am I going to write about? Very big into college football. So mm -hmm. Florida – was covered Miami, Florida State, but mm -hmm. especially University of Florida because Gainesville was much closer to Orlando. Yep. So they kind of had two seasons, the NBA and college football. And they, they would do some NFL because the Bucks had been somewhat recently successful in Tampa, Orlando, maybe an hour and a half. Mm -hmm. So in the summer where there was nothing to write about, I came up with a series called Writing With, where pretty simple, get in a car with an athlete of notice um, or of prominence rather, I interview them, we video it, we slap it on the website, easy Q&A, fills a news hole, mm -hmm. right? Because my day was Tuesday. I had to have uh, Tuesdays and Sundays were my column days. So the first person I did was Willis McGahee. And yep. I went down to Coral Gables. We do the, we're in, you know, doing the interview in his BMW. He's driving us around. <laughs> and I, I, I knew he had a couple baby mamas, <laughs> right? <laughs> and me being messy. <laughs> I was like, so Willis, uh, what's the difference between a, a baby mama and a wife? <laughs> right? Like, I'm just, I'm really just goofing around. And his answer was hysterical. He's like, oh, baby mama's the worst. He started going in on baby mamas. <laughs> and I'm thinking this content is hysterical. <laughs> so we printed, you know, because we had an online version and a print version. We printed. The editor of the Orlando Cinto is pissed because of the baby mama terminology she this old white woman that ain't never heard a baby mama in her whole life <laughs> and i got called into the principal's office me and my editor and had to apologize for using the term baby mama really i did so where espn gets involved is a friend in orlando was very close with an executive at espn a black executive and he used to, all, my friend in Orlando, he used to tell me, he called me J-Money. He was like, J-Money, you going to wind up at ESPN. I'm telling you, I'm telling you. When you do, you got to let me manage you, mm. right? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, whatever. So his boy that was the executive came to town, and he was like, you two should 
have dinner because uh, I've been sending him your stuff. The first we do have dinner. First thing he brings up is the baby mama thing. Oh my! Because it God. went viral as much as you could be viral then because some other blogs picked it up, mm-hmm. like everything. And he's like, well, that was hilarious. And, you know, whatever, whatever. And I was like, oh, my gosh. And so he's like, hey, what do you think about coming up to Bristol to interview? Because we have a columnist opening for ESPN.com because Skip Bayless is is leaving writing and he's going to be doing television full time and not writing. And I said, sure. And I went up there and the rest is history. So the same thing that kept me down. Come on and bless him. Is what made me rise. <laughs> Won't he do it? Won't he do it? That <laughs> is crazy. This is what happened. That is a very specific story. Nobody else on the planet Earth has your ESPN story. I got in there because of baby mama. <laughs> That's how I got in there. And I, I and it is important. The origin story is important uh, just in the sense of, I think, when you're a black journalist in particular. And this is why the late Stuart Scott was so incredibly impactful is the same things that the executives at ESPN used to deride and criticize him for. We knew what he was doing and he became a cultural icon Absolutely. because of that, because he was saying things like cooler than the other side of the pillow Man. and booyah and bringing all the ways that we talk when we're amongst ourselves to a national spotlight. That same thing that made it so much more difficult for Stewart early on at ESPN is what made him a star. You know what? That is so, I, that's what I think attracted me to you. It was like, just like Stewart, like we use the term regular black. And what we mean by that is like, you see a black person, you may not know much about them, but you'd be like, but I know that's a regular black person. Yeah, I mean, yeah. they might be on TV. They might be the president of the United States, but they probably can play spades. They're probably good at taboo. They bring something. <laughs> that's how I wait, judge. Wait, people. wait, is taboo now a part of? Oh, regular black. If regular you ain't black? good at taboo, you ain't regular black to me. Ooh, or okay. you can be not good and know it and uh-huh. be like, hey, I don't really play taboo because, you, you know, black folks, taboo is serious business. Mm. It is serious business. Spades is the most yes. serious of business. I'm, you know what I think is challenging Spades and most serious is Uno. Yeah. I think more fights break out over oh, Uno I, now than Spades. Because everybody can play Uno. Correct. Everybody can't play Spades, and so people avoid it. Yes. Everybody can play Uno. Yeah. And it'd be like, you really, you, you'd question someone's character. For a draw two or draw four, and then and then the rules are so different. Oh, I mean, oh my god! This is why I love. I follow the Uno account just to shade them <laughs> because the Uno is. Are talking. you one of those black people who tell Uno about yes, that they are wrong because they are wrong? <laughs> we made your game hot, okay? So we get to determine how it's played. So when they were like, no stackables, I'm like, no, that's not how we do it. <laughs> it's going to be some stackables. Black folks told Uno, just make the cards. We'll we'll take care of the rule. You keep printing the cards out. We'll determine the rule. Oh, but that new Uno? That new Uno? Oh, they man. trying to tear families apart. With the with the empty? With the empty, and you could trade, and you because you got to switch hands. Uh, oh, that switch I was hands like, is worse than drop I was like, four. man, somebody going to get fired on. <laughs> this is going to be too much. But now I know taboo is part of regular taboo black. Taboo is part okay. of regular black. And I think that's what made you, that's what connected a lot of us to you. It was like, okay, it's a regular, it's like our homegirl is on TV. And, you know, you I love Dan Patrick and Kenny Mayne and all that. But what Stuart Scott was like, okay, now that's, you know, and he was, I feel like he's the one that made catchphrases a thing at ESP. And then everybody was had their own, you know, thing. And then it then was you coming in. It was like, okay, now we feel like, we can watch ESPN and feel, you know, at home. But did you feel like you were breaking, you know, because uh, there was other black women there prior. 
But it I, was like Robin Roberts, yeah. Danielle Sargent. But it was different because I was one of the first, or maybe the first, I don't know, it, to host a show where my opinion drove the show. Like, mm-hmm. I wasn't a traditional anchor. You know, the Sports Center thing came later after me and Michael Smith had, uh, you know, we had his and hers. Yeah. And um, so it was a little bit of a, a different space. And one thing that I've told people, um, like, on his and hers, when you're in the moment, you don't realize what you're doing. Like, we, I can't believe they let us put some of that stuff on TV. I really can't. <laughs> I was like, y'all really let us do a Boys in the Hood skit on sp- ESPN. It was great, though. Where we said, keep them, you know what, them babies out the street. That literally happened on ESPN. I was like, I drank a real 40. It was real? It was real. What? Listen, you put apple juice in it. Why? <laughs> I'm an actor. I got to sell this, okay? God, we sent one of our production assistants to the store, and I was like, get some more liquor. Give me a 40. Bring it on air. <laughs> if it's not a real 40, what are we doing? <laughs> oh, my God. I never thought it was real. It was real. I thought it was apple juice and, like, club soda. Mm-hmm. You were like old English. Get that. Not- <laughs> I think it was called 45. I think that's what Cold it was. 45. It, that's right. But, wow. But, no, we – the our entire mentality and was that if we going to go down, we going to go down our way. Yeah. And – we never wanted to do anybody else's idea of what we should be on TV. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as Michael would always say, they will learn to like it. And he was right. Yeah. And uh, so when we started doing the skits, which, again, that came from a place of people, our producers, not actually liking the fact that when we would talk about sports, we would often probably to a very annoying degree, especially if you, you know, you weren't black and in the culture, we would always reference black movies. Mm. Like we get some boomerang quotes going, <laughs> you know, the the wood, you know, brown oh sugar, Richard God. Lawson. Like we just, I was like, little did I know that this was all going to come in handy. So we would always reference it. And one of the producers said to us like, hey, you know, people, I don't know that they get all the references that you guys make. And, you know, you might be turning off your audience and mm. this and that. To which I said, well, I watched Chris Berman, and he makes about 100 references I do not know. He's talking about films and movies or films and records from the 60s and 70s. I I don't know them. None. And he is considered a legend, so I think they will live. <laughs> if they got to go watch <laughs> The Wood to watch our show, so be it. Okay? If they got to go watch House Party to watch right, us, right. it is what it is. Right. And from there, it actually wound up being the best commercial for the show because – Another producer, it was Eddie Murphy. I believe it was his 50th birthday. And we saw that uh, NFL Live, it was some anniversary of the Princess Bride, which I've never seen. But I understand it's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I understand it's cultural influence. They did an entire show making uh, Princess Bride references, like Chase the Topic Bars, everything, did all of that. And so we were thinking, like, let's do the same thing, but do Coming to America. Yeah, yeah. And one of our producers, White, he said, he's like, no, let's let's really go all in. Let's do a skit because it was the year that uh, Floyd and Manny Pacquiao were fighting. It was the Kentucky Derby. Ronda Rousey was fighting. It was like one of the best sports weekends of the year yeah. was coming up. And we came up with the idea to change the barbershop scene to reflect it in modern day but still using the old characters. And uh, it was... I think, I mean, it was a huge turning point for, for the show because when people saw that coming to America's kit, 
Arsenio saw it, and he could not believe a sports show did this. Really? We went all in. We we rented out a barbershop for like six or seven hours. We asked people to freely give their time. I mean, you know, Robert Flores, a former ESPN anchor who uh, has since moved on, I think, to the MLB Network. He sat in makeup for hours to play the old Jewish guy, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. We're asking people to do this for free, yeah. okay? We're not paying anybody. <laughs> and we're doing this outside of having a daily show. But we were so committed to wanting this to be well done and to frankly, you know, to just highlight black culture. And everything that we did after that was us just being ourselves and us saying we we can break these television rules. Like, who cares? You know, so when they offered us the chance to do sports and we we're like, have they seen the show? Like, right. <laughs> they know? Not only SportsCenter, the 6 p.m. SportsCenter. One of the big dogs, you know, one of the major time slots. And, um, you know, unfortunately, that didn't work out well. And one thing that I definitely know better now than I knew then is is you got to trust your instincts. And there were some things that happened early on that were red flags. And I'm Mm. not saying I would have – I would not have done anything differently. Like, Mm -hmm. I still would have – because people have asked, like, oh, if you had to do over again, would you just stay on his and hers? I was like, but it kind of wasn't an option because we were getting a much bigger audience, a much bigger paycheck, mm-hmm. not like a little bit big. I mean, like generational wealth big, yeah, right? So yeah. like, I'm not turning that down. Listen, we can't afford to. If we, we don't can't. have generational wealth, you got to take the generational wealth chances. You got to take those chances. <laughs> yeah. And we're talking about an audience that would triple the size of our current audience. We would go from a very small studio that was in a closet to being in ESPN's $125 million digital facility, mm. a marketing campaign, commercials, like everything we ever wanted yeah. was a part of this deal, except the creative. Ah. <laughs> except the creative. It is like we were on different pages from the beginning, and it was clear to me, even before our first show, is that, oh, I see what happened. They thought they were getting the funny black people from the skits and didn't realize we black black all the way through. Okay. And they did not understand is that you will get this coming to America skit and the stepbrother skit and this Anchorman skit, but you also going to get this 15 minute conversation about Philando Castile. Right. You also going to get this 12 to 15 minute conversation about Colin Kaepernick. Mm-hmm. And then it was clear to us that like they weren't ready you know, and, it. It, and didn't know that when you have two black anchors put in that prominent position, it's going to attract the wolves. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people came for us early and there were perceptions about our show we never got from underneath. And by the time we figured out a groove, they changed leadership. I didn't like the new leadership. And so I left. I mean, mm. it was not um, I know there was a common narrative a perception that I was kicked off SportsCenter. I wasn't because it was guaranteed in my contract to do it. I had basically the equivalent of a no-trade clause in my contract. Mm. I had to lift that to get off of SportsCenter, and that's how badly I wanted off of it. Really? So was it I, – I know you say you would do it again. Do you think all in all you appreciated how it went down or you it changed the way you saw yourself or decision? Because I've had bad things happen, but it helped me be like, oh, if I ever get this again, I won't do that. Has it has that happened? Did that happen for you? I think that's why it's beneficial because okay. every uh, broadcast experience after that, I went with uh, I carried a little bit of the PTSD from SportsCenter in a good way mm-hmm. because now I know what it shouldn't look like, and I'm much more vocal about 
hey, I'll do it, but I'm not doing it if that's involved. So I'm much more, um, you know, much more uh, intentional about ownership of whatever situation that, that I'm in. Yeah. And being promised a certain creative. But also, you know, and in this way it was good, is that uh, it taught me to have some emotional distance from what I was doing. I, I don't want to fall in love again like I did at ESPN. Right. I don't want to do that again because it just – uh, it didn't bring any balance to my life and to be as invested as I was emotionally, I don't think is healthy. And so now I realize that, listen, all to a large degree, all these networks and entities operate the same way. Mm-hmm. They're not any different. So for me to stress myself out about a system that is going to be hard to change is really the definition of doing the same thing and expecting a different result. Mm-hmm. So I was like, I'm not going to do that again. <laughs> and because I do have a bit more emotional distance from some of the projects that I do that it allows me to have a healthier attitude about doing it Mm. so uh I would not ever trade doing it uh despite how everything turned out because I I wouldn't be here sitting with you right now yeah that's true I might not have found out you before from the the Orlando Sentinel you know what I'm saying (laughs) it wouldn't happen I might have been like you know we're gonna have this columnist (laughs) the first one from the Orlando Sentinel on coming to the stage Yes, I mean I might have still been slogging away on on Sports Center, and I didn't. I don't think fulfilling my creative purpose. Yeah, because you know, I could have stayed on and and done it, but especially after you know the Trump controversy, like there was a broken trust that was there, and mm. it was I didn't like coming to work, and that was the first time I felt that in my entire career, and definitely my entire time at ESPN. Mm-hmm. 